The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Tuesday, August 19th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I take you now to the news and analysis section of Bloomberg.com. Here I found this article, subject, skinny jeans. Three years ago, clothing merchants tried to snuff out the trend with an innovation called flares. Women kept right on buying the skinnies. Now, chains from The Gap to luxury-leaning Bloomingdale's are trying again with looser styles. Gap's answer, dressy sweatpants. Dressy sweatpants. The phrase doesn't really seem to even go together. It's like high-end fried carnival delicacies, or intellectually stimulating Wayans Brothers sequel, or totally rational North Korean press release, understated late career Pacino performance. Yeah, dressy sweatpants are not the salvation. They are the surrender. We, societally, we need sweatpants. The regular, old, gross, undressy sweatpants. They're comfortable. They're non-threatening. They lack allure, structure, and sex appeal. But now, as a society, grandmas insist on calling themselves glamas. Actual Wall Street Journal cited trend. We're at a place where mac and cheese is served with a dusting of truffles and speck. The only speck in mac and cheese should be, Ma, there's a speck in my mac and cheese. Pick it out and eat it! They tried upscale sweatpants in the past. You know, those fake velour, said juicy on the bum numbers. They marked you as a cut-rate Kardashian. Everyone assumed you had a yappy dog and outlined your red lipstick with brown, even if you didn't really. Dress sweatpants didn't work then, and they won't work now. Simon and Garfunkel once sang of a bridge, but it could have just as easily been sweatpants they were talking about when they said, when you're weary, feeling small. When tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I'm on your side when times get rough and friends just can't be found. Like a pair of old sweatpants. I'll be on the bottom of your drawer like... I'm going to stop singing, even though people really like it when I do, but I just want to point out that sweatpants are resilient. Like the elastic that defines them, they will surely return to their status as comfort clothes and defy the entreaties of brown-rim-lipped fashionistas. On the show today, Google's IPO, 10 years on, and the spiel remembers Don Pardo and examines his role in comedy... But first, let's go to the polls and see who could take the Senate come election time. So let's check in now on senatorial control, the polls, who takes the polls, who reads the polls, who knows the pulse of the polls. Harry Enten is a political writer and analyst from 538. There is a primary in the Republican Senate race in Alaska. Harry's here to talk about that and other things. Hello, Harry. Hello. So 538 came out with its August projections a few weeks ago. Last time we spoke, you said Republicans were quite likely to take control of the Senate. Is that still the case? Yes, Republicans are favored to take control of the Senate, probably somewhere in the area of about 60% right now. So that leaves open the door for Democrats to maintain control, but Republicans are favored. Have any Has anything changed in the last couple of months? I would say that Republicans nominated a good candidate in Georgia for their Senate race there against Michelle Nunn, David Perdue, 
who's relatively moderate conservative, certainly a conservative, not a moderate Northeastern standards, but not a crazy kook. Right. Okay. Other states. North Carolina, still tight as a tick. Arkansas, Tom Cotton's probably a little bit ahead. He's the Republican candidate taking on Democratic Senator Mark Pryor. Uh, Louisiana, we still don't know. Probably going to be a runoff there in early December. Because it's a jungle primary. Jungle, jungle love primary. love the jungle primary. Basically, we are where we are. And that is Republicans probably are going to pick up three seats. In Montana, they got a nice little boost with John Walsh going adios amigos because of the plagiarism scandal. Uh, South Dakota, where the most interesting thing about the South Dakota Senate race, besides the fact that Republicans will pick up, is that former Republican Senator Larry Pressler is running as an independent. Mm-hmm. He probably will hit double digits if you believe the polling, but not enough to keep Mike Rounds from winning that state. Uh, Let's talk about Alaska for a second. Mark Begich is the uh, Democratic incumbent senator, but he's vulnerable. Alaska is a Republican state. And now Begich himself, is he a good candidate? You know, is he doing as best a Democrat can do in Alaska? I would argue that Mark Begich is running perhaps the best campaign of any Democrat in the country right now, doing a great job of connecting with voters and creating an individual profile for himself outside of President Obama. And what is that profile based on? Well, that profile is based on the fact that I'm an Alaska. Alaskan. I know what you want. I know what you need. I have delivered for Alaska. Is he doing things like making very flashy anti-Obama votes? You know, we saw this with, uh, say, some of the West Virginia candidates who ostentatiously voted against Obamacare. Is that his game? Well, I would say that's part of it, at least, you know, on oil, you know, drilling in Alaska. That's a big play for him. He's run ads that play up just the fact that he is one of the guys and he is playing up the fact that he is an abortion rights supporter. He is not trying to distance himself from being, dare I say, a liberal, but he is separating himself from President Obama, whose approval rating in that state is probably nowhere north of 35 percent. A sitting president can drive voters to the polls if he's popular. So without that to play, that will hurt their chances. Why does Obama's unpopularity, you know, hurt Democratic candidates? Well, it's a number of things. First off, in any midterm election, there is going to be a backlash against the party that controls the White House. That's been in effect for at least the last 100 years. Right, right. So that's a big thing. So for a sitting president, just to be clear, a successful midterm is one where his party doesn't lose too many seats. That would be correct. I mean, I would say the most successful midterm for a president in the last 100 years was probably in 2002 with President Bush, and his approval rating was well into the 60s by that point. And what, did Republicans pick up only a few seats in the House? And that was considered successful. Yeah. It's a backlash. People do not want to give him any more power. Does that indict democracy a little bit? One guy's in the White House, we vote for the other guy. Then we hate the guys we voted for, then we hate the other guys we voted for. I guess I would just say, if you keep having chocolate ice cream every day, perhaps you want strawberry one day. All right. (laughs) We are the party of strawberry ice cream. The Republicans trying to brand themselves the party of ideas, but we'll take strawberry ice cream. People like ice cream. This is true. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about presidential politics. Karl Rove, writing in the Wall Street Journal, was talking about how Hillary Clinton was trying to separate herself from President Obama, that interview in The Atlantic. And Rove brought up historical precedent, Hubert H. Humphrey trying to do the same thing. And he made a point, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was to the effect, you know, maybe a highly skilled politician can walk this fine line. Hillary Clinton is hardly that. This is Karl Rove talking. But I was surprised. I thought Hillary Clinton was seen as a pretty good politician. What do you think? Everyone's seen as a pretty good politician until they lose, right? Yeah. Um, Clinton held her own in 2008. I think what people don't remember is that 
although she was leading an early primary polling, she was not running away with it. Mm -hmm. There was clearly a door that was open for a more liberal or an anti-war candidate. And when the tough got going, she got tough in late February, March, and she was able to stretch that out. Most other candidates probably would have dropped out significantly earlier than she did in the 2008 primary. So I'm not sure she's the strongest candidate I've ever seen, but she's a very, very smart woman. Very, very smart. Do you think there are any significant numbers surrounding Hillary Clinton and, you know, the dominance she shows, however you ask the question? The primary polling is where I look for the most significance. The fact that she is polling consistently in the 60s, consistently in the 60s nationally, in Iowa and in New Hampshire, these numbers are unprecedented for a non-incumbent. Remember last time around, she was polling in the mid-20s in Iowa, and that was her ultimate downfall, losing to Obama there. Right now, she's polling around 70%. Is there a general answer to this question? It's better for a presidential candidate to have faced primary opponents or not to have faced primary opponents? It depends how many ghosts they have in their closet, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you would think that, uh, that Hillary's ghosts are out by now. I would say that for her... And the fact that President Obama is not very popular and people will probably be wanting to make a change. For instance, if you look at Biden's numbers in a presidential race, they're far worse than hers are. Not having a primary opponent or having a relatively weak one, someone who, you know, makes her at least run a little bit, but not someone who drags her in the mud. She is the type of person who wants to be running towards the middle, especially with Obama being so unpopular. So at this point, how many seats will the Republicans have in 2014? How many de- uh, the Democrats in the Senate? I would, if if you were holding a gun to my head. No, and, let's and, hold a metaphorical uh, gun. A yes. metaphorical gun. Let's it, pressure you, peer pressure you. Peer yes. pressure me. Not as bad as in high school, but <laughs> I would say 51. I think that's a fair guess. I could obviously see them winning only five more seats and getting 50. I could see them winning seven seats and getting uh 52 seats. These are all within the range. And remember, in 2006, when Democrats took control, there were a number of close races on that night that all went their way. Three points or less on the margin, Missouri, Montana, and Virginia, which was the closest race of all. Harry Enten, senior political writer and analyst for 538. We're going to shove him back into his locker right now. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. So I've talked a couple times about Harry's razors, and uh, sometimes when you do these ads, you know, you, you know about the products, you like the products. I use Harry's razors all the time, although I don't shave all the time, but when I do, my face likes it. You know, that's not the slogan, but I'm going to suggest that for Harry's. Your face will like it. And the reason your face will like it is they're really good razors. They actually bought a company in Germany to make these razor blades, and they have an amazing deal. So when we at The Gist got this sponsor, they gave me a box, and the box had three razor blades, and it had shaving cream, and it had the razor handle. I'm like, this is really awesome, but of course, you know, I get this special because uh, they're advertising on my show. What do the regular people get? What is someone who goes to harrys.com and signs up? The answer is that, that exact thing. It's $15 for a razor, shaving cream, and three razor blades. I mean, compare this to the eight-pack of razors that you get that are like 32 bucks. For 15 bucks, it's so much better what Harry's gives you. So go to harrys.com, and they'll give you $5 off if you type in the coupon code THEGIST with your first purchase. That is H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter coupon code THEGIST and check out for $5 off and start better shaving today. Ten years ago today, a little company went public. Actually, a huge company, Google. 
This was a much anticipated public offering. It changed the stock market just as Google has changed communication. And part of that was, of course, the famous dictum, don't be evil. Joining me now is Rolf Winkler. He has an interesting beat for the Wall Street Journal. Rolf covers, well, Google. Google. You cover Google. So take us back to 10 years ago. Obviously, Google was, it was a much anticipated IPO. There were so many people trying to get into it. Google was an exciting company, but set the scene a little bit. What was Wall Street expecting when Google went public? Google, as you recall, tried a, what they called a Dutch auction, which was a very unique way of distributing the shares that I don't believe at the time had been tried ever on a scale like that. And it didn't go well, and the stock didn't perform well on the first day. That problem was short-lived in the stock quickly by the I think by the end of the year it had, it had doubled or so the company then the perception of the company was that it was what the place you go to find information it still is but then we it, the definition of that was more narrow it was sort of a search engine plus am I getting that about right Google had always been the place that sort of organized the wild web giving you links to all the places it determined were the most relevant for whatever keyword search you provided. And over time, what Google has done is it is increasingly, instead of providing you links to other sites where you can find answers, uh, it's providing those answers itself. Was there evidence then that it would be that sort of company that an investor could say, you know what, whatever they are now, they're just so brilliant and they're seeing the future differently than everyone else. They're seeing information differently than everyone else. Let's just sort of trust the brain trust of Google. Or was it more like, hey, we understand what, you know, a search engine is. Hey, we understand what their niche is. They're good in their niche, but, you know, this isn't going to change the world as a company. I think it's hard to perceive certain things that that happened. Um, (laughs) Android which is one of the you know, top five most successful business stories of the last decade, probably. And Google didn't own Android when they went public. As I recall, they bought it in 2005. They didn't necessarily have gigantic plans for it. Uh, but then the iPhone came out. They had been developing smartphones, but then the iPhone came out. They threw everything away they were doing, and they developed something new. Um, and sure enough, they now, they now dominate the smartphone market. Uh, uh, Google had Android had 85% share of smartphones uh, sold in the second quarter, shipped in the second quarter, Apple had something like 12%. So when Google went public, its stock, uh, I think the first day was 85, then lost a little bit. Now it's selling, as I speak to you, just shy of 600. And that's after a stock split. So the equivalent would be close to 1,200, 85 to 1,200. Unbelievable. The most Mm -hmm. bullish investors on Google, did they see that coming? People knew it was a juggernaut. The kind of advertising, kind of direct outreach advertising, people forget. People think of television advertising as the biggest form of advertising in the United States. It's not. Direct mail always was. Yeah. Um, all the junk mail you got in your, in your mail, that's, that's how advertisers reached you, certain kinds of advertisers. And they discovered that, well, it was much cheaper and more efficient to reach people when they happened to be searching for the thing you were selling. And that was Google. Let's talk about don't be evil. What was the perception of that then? A little naive, a little pie in the sky, a little, wow, this really is different, a little, uh, this is unrealistic. I think it's always been, uh, some people sort of think of it uh, with a little bit of derision. I mean, at the end of the day, Google is still a company that makes money. And it's funny. Fistfuls of money. (laughs) Even inside inside the company, there's sort of a, split personality in the sense that you, on the one side you have all these engineers and all these product managers and they're building things that they love and they say they think are changing the world and they're and they are in, in some respects and you know we're not worried about you know privacy why do you why do you 
why are you so worried about that? We're just trying to give you better services um, to help you in your life. And that's, they honestly believe this, and you kind of have to remind them. And you say, well, wait a minute. There's that whole other side of the company, this whole advertising side of the company that makes $50 billion-plus on advertising this year. Those folks are trying to sell me things, and they are, are very shrewd. And they are trying to get my data, not necessarily to provide me a better product or service. They'll say they are, but they want to sell you stuff. They want to target advertising at you. The next 10 years, where will their competition come from? Oh, I think it'll... That's, that's a great question. I think a lot of these technology companies will tell you that they, they fear their biggest competition is the guy in the garage that's just going to build a better mousetrap that you, haven't, you, you aren't anticipating uh, and you can't move quickly enough to, to counteract. I think the two largest companies that, that really put a fright into Google, uh, it's not Apple. Uh, it's Amazon and it's Facebook. Amazon because... When you think about it, it's just a search engine, too. It's a search engine for products. When you want to go, you're searching for something to buy, frequently now you'll just type that into the Amazon search box uh, instead of the Google search box. So that's a threat to Google, especially in the mobile world where it's much easier to buy something in an Amazon mobile app than it is to click back and forth between links from a Google search page. Uh, Facebook is also a threat because it has better information on its users. It knows who they are. It knows their exact age. And it has more detailed information potentially offering more targeted advertising. So it's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, grab a bigger percentage, potentially, of the advertising dollars that might otherwise go to Google. Ralph Winkler covers Google for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. And now the spiel. Announcer Don Pardo has died. The 96-year-old was the in-house announcer for NBC for 70 years. He did 70 years, yeah. He did retire in 2004, but Saturday Night Live really needed him. So there he was again last year saying things like, And now a Mother's Day message from Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton. That is the Don Pardo sound. It was stentorian throwback. It was declarative. It was redolent of old showbiz and assertiveness. Here he is announcing the local WNBC News show Live at Five. From WNBC TV New York, this is Live at Five with Jack Cafferty, Carol Jenkins for Sue Simmons, and Al Roker with the weather. Good evening, New York's war on crack. So what's crazy about that is the shot of the start of this news show is Don Pardo standing at his announcer's microphone. And right there is Jack Cafferty, Sue Simmons, and Al Roker with the weather. Usually the conceit of a news show is to de-emphasize the show and emphasize the news. The anchors are at a desk where the work is done news gathering. But Live at Five, which dominated local ratings here in New York, knew that a show was a better thing to sell. And what better way to announce that you are a show than with announcer Don Pardo right there on screen. Pardo announced game shows. He first told NBC viewers of the news of the JFK assassination, but of course he was best known for Saturday Night Live. The show used him for a couple of reasons. First of all, he clearly had good comic timing. <laughs> Tell them what they're playing for, Don Pardo. It's a car! It's a lovely car! It's a lovely red car! It's a lovely red car with a radio! Back to you, Reverend! Boy, that sounds good.
But Don Pardo was also a great comic foil. So just as a ball goes higher when it's bounced off a wall as opposed to a trampoline, zany, riotous comedy blooms when it's contrasted with something that is stolid and seemingly straight. Ellen Zwy Bell was an original writer for Saturday Night Live. He remembers Don Pardo as a great straight man. I think it was good for comedy because it was good to play off of. He was so the announcer. The way you hit the high notes and the levels and everything like that. I think given what we were doing, it, it played off of each other really well. Right. So the more serious and stentorian and authoritative he was, the more joyous and silly the comedy seemed. Don had a sense of humor, but he had a sense of humor about his own voice. You had the quintessential announcer. So Ibel recalls fellow riders like Michael O'Donoghue taking advantage of the associations that came with the Don Pardo voice. Don Pardo would uh, advertise a product that we made up. So when the audience heard Don Pardo, this was something O'Donoghue wrote, Don Pardo say, and now Weekend Update, brought to you by Pussy Whip, the dessert topping for cats. Well, it was hilarious because O'Donoghue was a genius, and he wrote that line, but it was done with the Don Pardo doing it as if he was announcing, an, you know, uh, it was in a manner range, you know, some Procter & Gamble product. Ah, that voice. Now, the trend is to have announcers sidle up to you, kind of talk to you like a pal. Listen to this guy. Thanks to Jiffy Lube, you save more of the first two by needing less of the third. Jiffy Lube, looking out for you. Or this one. This week's Toys R Us ad features fidget friends for $44.99. Walmart has the same fidget friends for $15. So what those guys are saying, beyond what they were literally saying, something like this. Hey, do you like my purposefully distressed modest mouse t-shirt? Yo, bro, want to grab me some cashews if you swing by Trader Joe's? Don Pardo's voice said, I shall have the steak, medium, and please tuck in your shirt. But the irony here is pretty deep because authoritative Don Pardo was by all accounts as sweet, likable, and fun as those young announcer guys are trying to sound. The critic Andrew Saris once said of a famous foil, People sometimes ask me why we don't have people like the Marx Brothers anymore. And I reply, we do have people like the Marx Brothers, perhaps too many, but we don't have anyone like Margaret Dumont anymore. And as of today, we no longer have Don Pardo. And that's it for today's show. Our returning champion, Andrea Salenzi, is a private investigator from Canoga Park, California. She's also producer of Slate Podcasts. Her challenger is Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, as well as a school teacher from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And today, they'll be battling it out on America's favorite game show listen in SoundClouds or go to iTunes. Hey, we made it up to number two in iTunes. As I talk, I think we're about number three. We can get to number one with your help if the way you listen to us is through iTunes. Also, we are on Yo. Are you on Yo? Sign up for Yo. Follow the podcast that's called Podcast. That is our name on Yo. It's just Podcast. And you'll get Yo'd as soon as our podcast is ready to go. Or in a less two-letter way, you can sign up for the daily newsletter. It'll hit your inbox the moment the show is live. Go to slate.com slash gist email. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email us at thegist at slate.com. Tune in next time for Spanning the World. If there is a next time. And thanks for listening. I will lay me down.